The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. I don't know if you guys uh, find this interesting or not, but I um, have had a long-standing interest in cult leaders and cults. Um, they are always very interesting to me. They, it's fascinating to me to consider um, what not only kind of the weird things that people will come up to believe in, um, but then how cult leaders kind of like manage to gain like group dynamics and how they um, hold everybody on point with what they believe. Um, I find cults very interesting. I remember um, when I was in middle school, um, the Heaven's Gate stuff around the Hellbop Comet and the end, you know, 1999, you know, this is the end of the world and all that sort of stuff. Um, that happened when I was a seventh, eighth grade, something like that. And that always just kind of like stuck in my mind. And another we can look at cults and... Um, kind of fringe groups, maybe to kind of make it more of a broad term, you know, and wonder, like, how do you get to a place where, like, you think, you know, like, Jim has all the answers and there's flying saucers behind the comets? <laughs> like, how do you get to a place like that? I don't think that we can look at those people and just say, like, well, they're all idiots, um, and they just, you know, just dumb people do that stuff. Because I don't think that's actually what's going on. I think what's going on but those people, when you, when you read kind of interviews with people and people who get out of those cults and kind of later process their life, what you ultimately find is that they are, they, they are at some severe pain point in their life and they were trying to find a way to make sense of all the craziness around them, right? You end up believing in lizard people or whatever because you're trying to make sense of what is going on and it just does not seem that the world is fair or that the world is right or that things are deeply wrong. And you're trying to find a way to have a system, a way of understanding the world around you that begins to make sense. At the heart level, the reality is that people go into these sort of things because of a life of pain and suffering and injustice, and they just want somebody to make sense of all of it. And in that way, whether somebody's in a fringe group or sitting with us here at Hope Center on a Sunday morning, we all have a similar dynamic in our lives. There is a deep reality of injustice. There is a deep reality of pain. There is a deep reality that this does not make sense at all. How do we live in a world that does not make sense? That is what Ecclesiastes 8 is all about. How do we live in a world where life is not fair, right? It just doesn't seem like it's not fair. People should not be in pain and suffering all the time. Injustice should not be happening all the time. I thought that we took care of all this stuff. Like, you know, what is it? Uh, I just watched The Incredibles <laughs> with my boys, and Mr. Incredibles like, the world always needs saving. I just fixed it, and you guys always are breaking it. And that's how the world feels at times. Injustice is always going on. And Ecclesiastes 8 is not about how we fix the injustices, but it's how our heart postures towards living in this world, right? The, the Ecclesiastes, that is one of the things that's painful about this book, is that it actually doesn't give us very much of like, okay, here's the blueprint for solving racial injustice, or here's the blueprint for managing um, a global pandemic. However, what it does do is it says that in both those situations, or a political climate of like we've got going on, or whatever the stress is for you and whatever's going on in your life right now, how do you have a heart that is postured for joy, that is postured for peace, that is postured for stability amidst a world that's just really not fair. Right here in Ecclesiastes, we are working through 
um, some of the deeper elements of the book, and we're finally kind of getting to what you might call as like the high point. Uh, and the high point deals a lot of deals with injustice and death. That's Ecclesiastes' high point. It deals with injustice and death. We've all kind of gotten to know Ecclesiastes is the emo of the, the the wisdom books. And after these chapter, after chapter eight and some of chapter nine, then we kind of start getting the Proverbs stuff. But what we're looking at here in chapter eight is how do we ha- how to be human, how to be joyful in a world that is unfair. And so here's what we're going to say the main point of this whole passage is. We can throw this up on the screen. The whole point of chapter 8 that we're going to be kind of landing on is that we are called to submit to God's power to find joy when life's not fair. Submit to God's power. We're going to see amidst all the injustices and the realities of death that God's power is supreme above all of these things, and God is the one that actually draws the narrative line of the universe submitting to God's power to find joy, submitting to what God, who God is and his character, even when we do not understand what is going on. And it is, there is a submission to this God that leads us to find joy, even when the world around us, the waters around us, even their neighbors around us, it just seems that life is not fair. So what we're going to do is we work through this, this chapter. There's kind of like these vignettes or case studies we're going to kind of see these things pulled out. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first eight verses and pull out one little, uh, one invitation or one dynamic of how to, what does it look like to submit to God, God's power. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter, and then we're going to pull out one final verse to close out this morning. So how, do we, how does submitting to God's power help me, um, help me help you when life is not fair? So verses 1 to 8. God's power frees you to faithfulness. So how does, God, how does submitting to God's power help you, um, find, uh, help you find joy when life's not fair? The first thing we're looking at is God's power frees you to faithfulness. So verses one, uh, 1 to 8, and then we'll kind of start uh, picking this apart. Um, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commandment. Keep keep, keep the king's command, uh, because God, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for what he does, for whatever he does, he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, "What are you doing?" Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time for a way for everything. Although a man's troubles lie heavy on him. And this, the last two verses. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him what it, what, um, how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no just discharge from war, nor will wickedness be delivered, uh, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So I think what's going on here, these verse, first th- uh, three lines, verse, verse, they're kind of broken up into kind of almost like this poem, and maybe that's how it's set off in your Bible. What the beginning of this chapter is getting at is basically saying, like, um, people who are wise think they understand what's going on, but actually nobody really understands the full scope of the world around them, right? And who knows the, right, what is it, um, who is like the wise, right? The wise, right, they say, I've got this thing figured out. 
and who knows the interpretation of the thing. But then down in verse 7, um, the preacher or the teacher says, look, for he does not know what is to be. And then actually he ends the whole chapter by saying, right, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So what's happening here in these verses is that he's setting the stage to say, look, somebody, uh, we, we tend to want to understand how to, everything pieces together. We want to see the whole puzzle of the world laid out, how all the pieces interlock, and nobody gets it right. He can't find it out. It's not possible. So what do you do? What do you do when you cannot figure out how all these things fit together, how injustice and power and death all kind of weave and, and, and wax and wane in this world together. And so that's where he picks up this whole thing about the king. Now, you have to remember in the old, uh, old ancient world, a king was the authority, right? He was the embodiment of the law, right? We can talk about kind of like, you know, the old Wild West type stuff, but like whoever the king was, whatever he said, that was the law. He said it, it was done. And so in that context where the power... Uh, the political power, literally over life and death, is in one person, whatever he says, whether he has you know, coffee in the morning or he forgets and he's got a headache, whatever he says, that's the law. That's what he's talking about. And so what he's saying is, look, keep the king's command, right? What do you do when all the power dynamics in this world are embodied in one person and that person is fickle and they can kind of go back and forth and they're not always like fair? <laughs> and there's not any actually clarity in these verses as to whether this is a good king or a bad king. It's kind of ambiguous intentionally. What do you do? Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, this is kind of like a similar dynamic to Romans 13, where he says that, look, God's given authority to governments to manage the sphere of the civil life. And so there is a due respect and honor to those uh, institutions that is uh, appropriate, right? It's not commending servile obedience, right? So there at the uh, verse 3, do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. It's not quite clear, but it seems like either it's an evil cause against the king, or it's an evil cause from the king, and there's a distancing that you can have that begins to say, look, there is a, uh, a, a due respect to the king, or to power structures, but uh, there's a recognition that there is a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do, and that wrong thing is called evil, and you do not want to be given to an evil cause, whatever that is. So what he is holding out is that there is power structures that can be used for good or evil, and that when you stand before God, you are called to be faithful to God's commands. Right? That's where the whole book of Ecclesiastes ends with this right, very statement, right, the end of the matter is the very end of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Right? Even that, that dynamic, fear God and keep God's commands, right? So you think Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, that type of stuff, right? Do, you know, don't murder, that type, big, big category stuff. Um, in the presence of a power structure where those things may be compromised, you are called to be faithful to God's commands, regardless of the consequences, right? For the word of the king is supreme, verse 4, and who will say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So what he's saying is this is a street smarts dynamic, right? This isn't like, I only obey the king on Mondays. <laughs> this is I have to work within this power structure. I have to live within this. It's not always clear. It's not always 
um, obvious, but it will come and be clear, become clear what it means to be faithful in this moment as those moments arrive. So, verse 5 is leading the way to say there is, the way of faithfulness is being patient, but it's also a freeing experience of life before God because you know that ultimately God's the one in control. Right? So here we've kind of been, uh, I've not been avoiding verses 6 through 8. For there is a time and a way of everything. Right? This is a callback from chapter 3. For there's a time and a way of everything, although man's troubles lie heavy on him. Right? We, we want to understand things clearly right now. I want the answer, what do I do now? It's not always clear. Callback to chapter 3. Right? There's a time for everything. And then verse 7. For he does not know what is to be, nor who can tell him what will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power, or power over the day of death. Right? And then we get this weird sentence. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness be delivered, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So what's going on here? Right? The summary of these verses is nobody can cheat death. But in the ancient world, especially at this time, what you could do is um, if the king said, we're going to war, and you were a rich guy in the town, you could say, all right, I'm going to pay Jacob, who's this, you know, bum on the side of the street, I'm going to pay him to go to war in my place so that when my name gets killed in war, uh, Jacob gets killed in war, and I don't. So effectively, it was a power structure thing where they could basically pay for mercenaries to go, play, go, go to war in their place, and, you know, they can uh, avoid the draft, so to speak, and other people can die in their place. And even Ecclesiastes is saying, even in that power dynamic, nobody, nobody can avoid the day of their death. Even if you pay somebody to go to war in your place and they die on the field, ultimately your day will come. Which is to say that in the face of power structures, even the king himself who is over you, the power structure that you're operating within, ultimately has the brackets of life and death on either side set by the Lord himself. Ultimately, the company will fail. Ultimately, the country will dissolve. Ultimately, something will eventually disperse or die. And so, the context of faithfulness, the heart posture towards these things is to say, I will be faithful to the Lord. I will keep his commands because he is the one to whom I will give answer. All right. If people have corrupt power over this life, who has pure power over life and death? And the answer is the Lord himself. As I was beginning, as I was processing this, it actually struck me that I want to read some verses from the life of Jesus and consider with me that maybe actually Jesus had read the book of Ecclesiastes and had applied it to the mission of discipleship in the church. Here we have in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples on the mission to go share the gospel, tell people about the good news of the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 10 verses 16 to 20, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governments and kings for my sake. Right? It sounds almost kind of like the beginning of chapter 8 here, where you're being dragged into the presence of the king, or what do you do in the presence of the king? Do you flee quickly? Do you, do you run? Do you be a punk? What do you do? Well, you're in this context, and now you've got to think on your feet. And Jesus says, they're going to, you're going to be dragged before them to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. They will deliver you over. Do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. 
for you're to say, well, what, for what you will, be, will say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That sounds so similar to Ecclesiastes 8, whoever keeps, verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Right? They will know what to say and what to think and do in that exact moment in the presence of the kings. And then Jesus goes on to say, almost as though he continued to reflect on chapter uh, 8 in Ecclesiastes, so have no fear then, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. For I tell you in the, for what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, Ecclesiastes 8 is acknowledging that there are power structures, there is unfairness in this world that we cannot control and possibly fix, and yet amidst all that, we are called to be faithful to the Lord who can destroy both body and soul, even though the power structures around us may ultimately kill the body. And Jesus, reflecting on that, says, in the mission of the church, God will be with you and provide the wisdom and and words that you need along the way as you proclaim the gospel, as you live a life for the gospel that you will only know in those contexts. So the call is simply, because of God's power, you are free to be faithful, right? What's the worst that can happen? They can kill the body. They can send you to war. They can tax your brains out. (laughs) They can't destroy your body and soul. And so let's be faithful to the one who can, the one who's eager to provide for us. I think what this verse does for us in the midst of unjust dynamics, because if you're in an unjust power dynamic, you want to fix it, right? That's, you want to make it right. There are things about this that need to be fixed. This is not right. We need justice. And what this verse does is that it says, you are just called to simply be faithful in the midst of all these things, right? Even, right, you can imagine this situation that Jesus is playing out and what he's saying in Matthew 10. Uh, you're getting sent out, you're going to get dragged before these courts, and you're going to have to give witness to who I am. So not only are you going to be, you know, dr- potentially literally dragged on the street, and so you've got all the physical abrasions and the road rash and all that stuff, you're getting dragged, or just physically, you're just being manhandled into the courts. All the drama and emotions and adrenaline of, this is not right, I shouldn't be treated this way, what's going on here? And now I have to get up and I have to give a speech. I haven't studied theology that enough and I haven't memorized a speech of what I'm going to say and do. I have no idea what I'm going to say right here. In the midst of all these injustices that Ecclesiastes 8 and Matthew 10 envision, you're not responsible to figure out all the details. I think what this verse, these verses do is they begin to undermine this subtle kind of savior complex that we, begin to, that we love to operate on, especially in unjust context, right? When it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's whatever other things are going on these days. Uh, we want things fixed, and we want them fixed now, and we want them fixed correctly. And the reality is that we just can't do that. We can't possibly figure out how to do all those things correctly. We can't possibly be the one who sustain those things, and we can't possibly be the ones to ensure that they get fixed and stay fixed. At a, at a personal level, I see this all the time in pastors, right? Pastors um, often uh, get in the job because they're really good at helping other people, and they get addicted to helping other people. And then they get this subtle kind of savior complex, like, I have to be available to people because what are people going to do? I have to be the one to help them all the time. And so they're 
they're pastors 24-7. There are only a few things in this life that you're 24-7, right? You're a man or woman 24-7. If you're a Christian, you're following Jesus 24-7. If you're married, you're married 24-7. If you've got kids, you're, you're, ki- you're mother or father 24-7. And if you've got dogs, I guess you've got to take care of them. Cats, no. Um, other than that, I'm not a pastor 24-7. I get paid, you know what, 40, 50 hours a week to be a pastor, and there's obviously exceptions to that, but I don't get paid to be a, somebody's savior 24-7, right? You should not be the, the injustice czar to fix everything 24-7. You can't be the one to fix the power structures or whatever it is that are going on 24-7. You cannot be the one to bear the weight of that stuff. But the purpose of these verses is to say, amidst all that, you can be faithful. And sometimes that just means simply saying, I need to think through, what does it mean to be faithful to this area of my life? Whether it's fighting human trafficking, whether it's being faithful with my job during the week. And if I can meet to those things, if I can aim at doing those things, I've been faithful. I can trust the rest of this stuff to God. He can handle the rest of it. Right? He is the one that can take care of those things because he is the one to ultimately... I, I mean, I guess I have the power of life and death in that, like, I can kill, like, mice that come into my house. But, like, I can't control seven billion people, and I'm not Thanos, you know? Like, that's crazy. But I can be faithful to the world around me for the few things that I can, uh, that I'm called to, and I can trust the rest of those things to God. And that's where the freedom of God's power helps us kind of begin to navigate these injustices. Okay, are we all tracking? I feel like I'm, all right. We're going to pick up here. We're going to finish out these, uh, the chapter and then swing around to the final verse. Second, second dynamic that we see here is that God's power gives you perspective but not answers, right? So if we were freed to be faithful um, in the first eight verses, the nine, nine through 17 helps us to understand that we are given perspective but not ultimate answers in how we live in the world full of injustices, a world full of unfairness. Uh, Let me just kind of read the first uh, verse 9 and then 16 and 17, and then we'll kind of piece together the rest of things in between here. All This is where the reason I've I've grouped this together, I know that in your Bibles, verse 9 is like the end of a paragraph, and why didn't I go to the end of the paragraph? It just seemed to me that verse 9... He's beginning a thought, and then verse 16 and 17 is ending the thought. And so I'm just kind of showing you these two parentheses or these brackets. All that I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power, all this I observed, when man had a power over man to his hurt. Right? When man had power to hurt other people when things are not fair. And then he swings back, verse 16 and 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom. And to see, see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes cease sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So I see in this, like, the beginning and closing of a thought basically saying, like, uh, we just can't, I, I just don't understand how people can have both power over everything and have absolutely no clue about how the world works. But that's where the life of injustice happens, right? And so that's, that's what he's meditating on here. And so God's power enters into that and says, God's power gives you perspective, but not ultimate answers, right? You're not going to figure out how all, this things, all these things fi- 
fit together. So let's read through these kind of piece by piece. Verse 9, the, um, then I saw, I'm sorry, verse 10, uh, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praising the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, right? This is, right, those people that um, are kind of like religiosity, like I go to church to be seen going to church, but I'm actually just a mob boss during the week, or maybe I just don't really care about God during the week, or maybe I just work my life, you know, and don't really just, I just am totally indifferent to God, and I do things my way, but I make sure to kind of get that cultural check of doing church on Sundays. Um, that's kind of what he's addressing, right? <laughs> it is it is absolutely useless, right? It is absolutely a vain uh, life dynamic. It is not fair, and yet, sometimes those people are never found out, right? They go to church, people think they're great, and then through the week, they live a totally crazy life, um, defying God and ignoring God, and then nobody finds out and they die. And so they're praised as this highly religious person. That's one thing that he's pulling out, right? It's not simply like religiosity is bad, but sometimes you don't know that other people are religi- like just wickedly religious. Verse 11, because of the sentence of death against an evil deed is, is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, right? Basically, this is kind of like um, commenting on this reality that like, uh, because uh, people who deserve to get punished aren't punished quickly, they go on to do more bad things, right? They go on to do more uh, wicked things. And he's like, why can't justice just be served quickly, right? If you've ever been involved in the justice system, you think, ah, bad people get found out, they go to court the next week, and then they go to jail the next week. <laughs> That's not the way the world works. Uh, our justice system is painfully slow sometimes. And that's what this comment this is commenting on, right? Criminal activity, unjust activity is done. Justice is delayed. More is done in the process. That's what this is commenting on. He's saying, I don't understand how this works. Like, God, don't you care about justice? Why don't you just thunderbolt them from the sky? Verse uh, 12, uh, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. But it, will not, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. This is commenting on this reality that, for whatever reason, in God's economy of the world around us, uh, sometimes the wicked uh, live long lives, and sometimes the righteous our lived short lives. I mean, I, I think about this. I was thinking about this this morning. You know, here we are in the Hope Center, and Bill's not with us. Bill has passed away at 63, and yet Hugh Hefner, who proliferated um, un, untold damage on the world through Playboy and all that stuff, lived to be uh, 91 years old. I, I don't understand, like, how can... He lived to 91, and Bill only lived to 63. Like, I don't understand how this world exists. Like, where are we? How does this happen? Well, that tension is exactly what these verses are intended for. He was actually on the comment here on verses 14. Uh, I want to remind us that what we said early on is that the Ecclesiastes is um, the preacher, probably Solomon, uh, the teacher, reflecting on these very early chapters in the book of Genesis. 
And in the book of Genesis, you have obviously the creation, God's beautiful gifts that he gives, Adam and Eve, the culmination, they're supposed to rule and lead the world into being glorified in God's presence. They obviously uh, kind of messed that one up. Um, And then on the other side of that, like immediately chapter four, you have the story of Cain and Abel, right? After Adam and Eve are kicked out, they have two sons. These two sons grow up. Cain um, is a farmer. Abel uh, is a, or I'm sorry, Cain manages livestock. Um, Abel manages plants, whatever. Abel's name in Hebrew is actually the same word as vanity. The same, it, it, this mist, this impermanence. So when we get to chapter uh, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 14, behind this is, is a meditation on the story of Cain and Abel. There is a vanity, right? Hear that word, vanity, think Abel. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Think about the story of Cain and Abel. Cain is not a good guy. He gets to live a long life and is actually ultimately protected by God to live a long life. Abel, righteous guy, murdered by the wicked guy, not able to live a long life, not protected by God. That's what this is commenting on. And we see this all the time, right? Good people, bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. That's kind of what's happening here. And so where do we go with all of this? What do we do with this? Verse 16 to 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he may not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Um, Ultimately, where the preacher or the Ecclesiastes leads us to is meditating on this reality. God's works are bigger, broader, deeper, more established than we could possibly ever understand. And in the midst of all of this drama that God is laying out for us, those are the things, like verse 17, then I saw the work of God, those things, understanding God's power to run this whole thing, that gives me perspective to understand these things that I don't understand, right? Ultimately, it's not getting answers, it's getting perspective on understanding God's the one calling the shots, my works, I mean, I can barely fix something in my house and it stays fixed for like five seconds, Right? I don't know how many things I've, you know, clean up, sweep the dishes, sweep the, sweep the floor. You don't sweep dishes. Sweep the floor, and then, you know, my little son, Ian, walks in and just kind of like, hey, look, this cup of fishies. Eh. You know, it's just like, I don't, I can't keep anything clean, right? But God's work is established. God is the one calling the shots, and he doesn't give us much more than that, right? We are led to be at face-to-face with God and say, God, you are the one who is in power. You are the one who has power. You're, your attribute is power. So all these things that seem unfair, I don't have to an- have answers, but I do know that you're calling the shots. I do think that there's something for us, especially in this time right now, to meditate on in verse 17. Even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. 
I think that one of the things that we are susceptible to is that we, we want to have a system for understanding what's going on or a, a system for how to make things better, right? That's what the whole Constitution is based on, right? Here's how we're, this whole thing being banged on by the, the British and getting taxed out of our eyeballs, that's got to stop. So we're going to rewrite this whole thing and do something else on our own. And then within the system, you get different, you get the, early on, you get the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, you know, you get these early uh, dynamics of, okay, with that big superstructure in mind, here's how we're going to do a better version of that. And that is the way it has always been, right? We always think we have got a better solution, whether you're a socialist, a libertarian, a Republican, Democrat, all of these political ideologies come to the table and say, ah, I figured it out. This is the key to helping life get better. And maybe they are. Like, I'm not making, I'm not banging all of them saying like they're all wrong. I'm just saying the impulse is to find a way to, to get a system that makes things better. There are things to do to make things better, but we have to do them with a bit of an open-handedness about them rather than an established, I've got it figured out, right? I've been married for 13 years. I can barely understand how we got to 13 years, and she hasn't murdered me. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I understand a little bit I, of how, you know, decisions made along the way. We made it 13 years. We still love each other. We, you know, it's okay. <laughs> Like, we're going in a good direction. I barely understand how that thing has happened. We've been at the church for six years, the church plant. We've been six years at this. I barely understand. Like, I've been the primary one in the driver's seat. <laughs> and I don't, I'm like, I, we made these decisions along the way, and these things happened, and the church did these, these things, and we, we got to this place. But, like, if you were to, like, ask me to do, like, a total autopsy on how we've gotten to this point, I don't think I would be able to understand or remember or be able to kind of put it all together to understand how do we get to this point? There is a, a level of perspective that we have to understand to say, Jesus is the one at the helm of the universe. So my, whatever my perspective is on anything, must always be in submission to recognizing he's the one calling the shots. I don't have to have the full picture. I don't have to have everything in mind. So what do we do with COVID-19 and how to respond uh, to a pandemic at a global uh, dynamic? What do we do with racial injustices uh, and police brutality and Black Lives Matter? What do we do with the political cycle that's leading up towards an election <laughs> this year? I don't, I, dude, I say those three things and I can't believe that I live in this world. Like, this feels like a movie. Like, and that is not, this is the real life. <laughs> to, to quote Queen, this is not fantasy. <laughs> this is the real life. And this is, the, we are going to constantly be um, allured by campaign slogans to think this is the thing that will fix it, right? You think if it was 2008 with Obama's, um, you know, change we can believe in, or if it's 2016 with Make America Great Again, right? I, I was looking at campaign slogans, and one of the weirdest ones was um, from Herbert Hoover in 2000, or not, not 2000, 1928, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like the early hipster to me. But, you know, I'm just saying, like, whatever the campaign slogan is, recognize that they have no, they, they, are, they, they, they are not even close to putting a pinky on the driver wheel of the universe. So let's remember, God is the one whose power drives this ship. 
even when life seems so unfair and we want to get it behind a political uh, movement to bring change, which is totally fine. We should be politically involved. That's great. There is a level of humility, a level of submission that must happen to have a healthy soul. And that's where we're going to end. Uh, a healthy soul amidst all these things so that we are not bearing the burden of all this stuff. Even be committed to those things. You know, great. Go for it. But there's a, a, a healthy soul that comes about by submitting and getting perspective from God's power rather than having all the answers. So let's finish this out. That perspective is held, I think, here at the center point of chapter 8, even though it's at the end of it, is verse 15. God's power invites you to joy amidst chaos. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This is, I think, an invitation amidst the chaos of everything going on. I mean, it's, it's quite literally like there's this chaos of all these vignettes of stories in the chapter 8, and then amidst all that rises up out of this, I commend joy, right? There, there is something going on in verse 15 that is an invitation to a healthy soul, a healthy posture. So how do we do this, right? I, how do we do this? I, I, I've just been listing all these things, right? Black Lives Matter, the COVID-19, the political stuff, paying the bills, parenting my children. For me, uh, leading a church, caring for my friends in the church, helping us understand the mission of God, it begins to feel like I'm drowning with all these things going on. The place we go with all those things is I think we want to, with the Bible, look, what do we see Jesus doing? What's Jesus like? And actually, I just want to look at a pattern in Jesus' life as a way of embodying what this verse is all about. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, all through the Gospel of Luke, there are these, these meals that Jesus is just showing up in. Like he's just showing up in all these meals all through the book of Luke. I, I think I have it on a slide. I can show it there, but it's in my notes, and you guys can get these. Verse, chapter 5, we have a banquet at Levi's house, right, where the, he's with tax collectors and sinners. Verse, chapter 7 in the Gospel of Luke, he's dinner at Simon's house with the Pharisees' guests, and there's a sinful woman with the ointment and the oil and stuff. Uh, chapter 9, he's feeding the 5,000. Obviously, that's with disciples and a crowd of 5,000. That's probably actually 15,000 people because there was just 5,000 men. Ten, chapter 10, right, there's Mary and Martha. Chapter 11, there's dinner, dinner at a Pharisee's house because Jesus got political, allies, uh, political friends on both sides of the political spectrum, right? Verse, chapter 14, Sabbath meal at the Pharisee's house. Um, chapter 19, there's the hospitality with Zacchaeus, right? Where Zacchaeus, wee little man, wee little man is he? Up in the tree, comes down, eats a meal, has it with Zacchaeus and all of his friends. Then there's chapter 22, the Last Supper, right? Obviously, that's with the apostles. Chapter 24, breaking your bread on the Emmaus Road. And then chap- the end of chapter 24 is with the disciples. So there's, and then not to mention that all through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is using meals as a teaching illustration, right? There's, um, obviously, in the life of Jesus, there was the temptation in chapter 4 for uh, the temptation of Jesus with the, um, with the meal to turn the rock into stone. Uh, there's a question about fasting. There is um, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, right, where the rich man has all this food and Lazarus doesn't. Right, so Jesus is just all about food. <laughs> Why is Jesus all about these meals? I think it's because Jesus gets all of this stuff. Can you imagine what Jesus' ministry life was like? Bro, 
I can have like some decent advice from time to time to help people like grow and their disciples of Jesus. Jesus could heal lepers, raise the dead, multiply fish and food. I mean, the guy was just like a walking like socialist, you know, dream, right? He just gave everybody everything all the time and healed everything. Like he was just infinitely, abundantly generous and giving. Not to mention that he actually had better advice than I could ever possibly have, saw into the hearts of people, and helped people all the time in teaching. I mean, it, preaching one sermon for an hour is exhausting. Jesus did it for hours, every day. I mean, it's like you begin to stack up all the things that were going on in Jesus' life, and you begin to feel like, well, my panic over Black Lives Matter and COVID-19 and political dynamics and paying my bills, all right, that, that's like down here, and then Jesus is up here, right? And then in the midst of all that, Jesus has a meal where he's just like hanging out with people, sticking his feet out, and people are like wiping his feet with their hair, you know? Like Jesus is just enjoying the good gifts of God amidst the chaos of his life. And I think it's because Jesus gets this dynamic. Amidst all those things, you have a big circle, all the injustices of the world. You have a little circle inside that. These are the things that I'm responsible for. I begin to toe outside that line, that's where my soul gets unhealthy because I'm taking on responsibility for things that only God can handle. Jesus understood his place in the hands of the Father. He understood, while both being man and God, that I can just trust that God has got the power to handle this. And I can just be and enjoy and receive these little gifts. Right? And that's not to say that Jesus doesn't say hard things, right? Jesus is the one, he addresses injustices all the time. Actually, he's hanging out at the houses of people that he ultimately addresses the injustices at, right? He calls the Pharisees out, and he's hanging out and having meals with them, right? But he takes the opportunity when it's given to him. He's not like constantly like, you know, warrior mode going out there, getting everything done all the time, beast mode, right? He's being faithful, right? He's got perspective. And he's entrusting all of these things to the Father's care to provide for him. And yet he's still just receiving, right? I mean, Jesus had to have had, had this on a regular basis. It was just kind of like, well, that one time Jesus went on vacation and he had like a meal, right? Because he had a reputation for, for hanging out and partying. Verse 15, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. We receive this in the hands of Jesus because he has borne in himself not only the the, the painful realities of injustices towards each other, of humanity towards each other, but ours towards God. Jesus bore all of that, and yet he was able to find joy amidst all of that because he was entrusting things to God. He was entrusting himself to God. He ultimately took on himself all the ways in which we create the chaos of this world so that he could then invite us to the meal of the Lord's Supper to receive grace from him where he, his body was broken for us. Jesus bore the weight of injustice on the cross, both ours against God and ours against each other, so that we can now receive verse 15 from the hands of Jesus himself, for I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. So, what do we do with this passage? Um, As a pastoral command, you must go get a steak and grill that sucker and eat that sucker to the glory of God. (laughs) If you're a vegan, sorry get tofu, tofu that sucker up, eat it to the glory of God, whatever. You understand what I'm saying? These things are good gifts. Turn, 
this little uh, pernicious device off, set it on your dresser, get the grill, get the skillet, whatever you do, and just have a good meal, turn all your devices off. You can turn off just for an hour. Just turn off for an hour. Look at your friends, look in the mirror, and just enjoy being a person receiving good gifts from God. Get a, a good beer if you don't have an alcohol problem, right? Get a good, I don't know, seltzer if you got, if that's not a good thing for you, but whatever, you know, like just enjoy good gifts and receive them. In fact, it may be worth considering making Sunday uh, a Sabbath more of a priority to just simply pause and receive. Receive God's good gifts. Because ultimately, he's the one that's got the power, and he's got it all under control. I can never possibly understand how all these things fit together. And yet, he still continues to give us good gifts, right? Friends, board games, uh, good weather to go play outside, good food to enjoy. So we're, we're talking about these massive categories of what do we do when life's not fair? Bro, just sit with Jesus at the table and receive good gifts. Just sit with him and receive the reality. Submit to this wonderful, freeing, perspective-giving dynamic reality that Jesus is the helm of the world and God's power has got everything under control. So if God's power has got everything under control, even with the unfair realities of this life, submitting to this Jesus, that is the pathway of joy and a healthy soul. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.